So today is kind of a special Sunday. This is Rejoice Sunday. Uh, we'll hear more about that in the sermon, but it's a special day because, let me see if I can carefully move Lois Ann's computer. <laughs> we don't want to do any damage here. And you can see the rose candle there in the Advent wreath. That's because this is a Sunday where the somber mood of Lent is not quite so somber and we take more joy. I don't know if you noticed, but this is a rose chasuble. Mm -hmm. uh, the church has one, Christ Church has one. And so I decided if I don't wear it this Sunday, I won't have a chance to wear it ever. So we take note that today is a special day when we share joy and we think about joy. So in just a couple minutes, I'll ask you if you can think about what brings joy to you or what brings joy to other people. But in addition to this being the third Sunday of Advent, with only one more Sunday left, and this being a Sunday where we talk about joy, tomorrow is also a special day because it's St. Lucy's Day. Now, a lot of us may not know about St. Lucy. She was a young woman who defended her faith. And in lots of places, she's actually called Santa Lucia, which sounds pretty Italian or Latin, and it is. But in our Lutheran tradition, Santa Lucia, whose name means light, was really important in Scandinavia, like in Sweden and Norway. And so on St. Lucy's Day tomorrow, many times young women would bring lovely things like tea and cookies or coffee and goodies to their parents early, early in the morning, and they would have candles in their hair. Across the bay in Oakland at the church where I did my internship, St. Paul, we had a Santa Lucia evening, and there was a big dinner full of Swedish and Norwegian things, and a young woman came out in a white robe dressed as St. Lucy with a wreath with lighted candles in her hair. Of course, I was scared. I was, uh, that's dangerous. That's what I said to myself. I'm really hoping that she's careful. But they took lots of precautions. So I'm not suggesting that you might have uh, candles in your hair tomorrow morning. I wouldn't suggest that at all. But you might think about bringing something nice to your parents just in honor of St. Lucy. Now, I'll have more to say about that in just a minute. But what do you think? brings joy to you or to other people? Um, what brings joy to me is um, going to the horse barn. Going to the horse barn? You know what? When I was your age, that brought joy to me, too. We had a quarter horse, and her name was Donna. And she was just about the nicest critter you could imagine. And she and I had a wonderful relationship. And we, we rode places together in the country. It was wonderful. Yeah. Lots of people find that being in the country or being with their animals brings them joy. I just yesterday met Benson, who's somebody's companion animal. Uh, down at St. St. Mark's Church yesterday. There's a woman who always brings Benson with her to work. And Benson brings her comfort and joy. And you know what? Everybody loves Benson. So when he comes into your office, 
He brings a lot of joy. That's right. So all kinds of things can bring us joy, and we want to share that joy with one another. One more little thing about St. Lucy's Day. Linnea has fixed us a coffee after church that is special for St. Lucy's. Special cookies that are heart-shaped, as you can see. And she told me, now, if you put that cookie in your hand, and then you make a wish, and you can't tell anybody, and you press in the middle of the cookie, and if it breaks in three pieces, your wish will come true. So oh. let me show you what happened to Pastor Jim when I did that. I hope you can see this. Well, let's see. Hey, can you see three pieces? Yeah, that's yeah. cool. That was cool. Linnea said she had never seen them break so nicely. So I should have wished for something really, really big, but I didn't. I wished for something special, small for all of us. So tomorrow, St. Lucy's Day, let's think about bringing light and joy to each other, okay? And maybe, maybe who knows, will you get to go to the horse barn? Not on Monday. Not on Monday, no. Not on Monday, okay. <laughs> good, good. Thank you so on much. On Saturdays. On Saturdays, good. Well, I'll remember that on Saturdays. Good for you. I'll press the mute button now, and we'll have just a short prayer before the sermon starts. Dear Jesus, you are the one who brings us light and joy. Help us always to keep you in our eyes and in our hearts. And tomorrow, as we remember St. Lucy, let us remember all those who stood firm in their faith. Amen. 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 You really should see this. It broke perfectly in three pieces. I should have wished for something big. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Those are the words that were read for us from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in the King James format, by the way, is how I read it. And those words formed the introit or entrance hymn for this third Sunday of Advent for who knows how many centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the first word tells us to rejoice. And the Latin for that was gaudete. And it's a plural imperative, and that means all of you, all of us, rejoice ye, everybody rejoice. And the Hebrew Bible reading also calls for us to rejoice and exult. Did you hear that? So, what ways make for joy? I'm glad you asked because I have some suggestions, but you'll have to wait towards the end of the sermon to hear the answer. Our gospel text draws our attention once again to John the Baptist. And his prophetic voice emerged in the wilderness, remember? And proclaimed a baptism of repentance, a washing to symbolize turning around. We have previously considered turning around from perfectionism and judgmentalism and obsessive materialism. And before we move specifically to today's gospel lesson, 
we need to consider further the remarkable impact of this John the Baptist, this comparatively obscure prophet who had left us no written legacy. There's no book in the Bible called the Book of John the Baptist, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. There's no book like that in the Bible. So he left us no written record, but he's been the cause for volumes to be written. John the Baptist is mentioned 24 times in Luke and nine times in 2nd Luke, which we know better as Acts of the Apostles. And it's notable, I think, that John the Baptist is the only person other than Jesus whose birthday is commemorated in the liturgical calendar. Most commemorations of saints' days, like St. Lucy, mark the death of the saint. And in this country, June 24th, which was the longest day in the Julian calendar, June 24th passes by with comparatively little notice. But that's not the case in places like Quebec. And it certainly isn't uh, the case in countries like Latvia, where it is a national holiday and it's commemorated with outdoor activities and bonfires on the tops of hills, and everybody wears oak wreaths around their heads. Luke is fairly clear that John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus. So, comparing to Christmas, it's not surprising that John's birth is honored in June. But there is a cosmological twist to this, however, that honors the words of John the Baptist when he said of himself and Jesus, I must decrease so he can increase, Jesus can increase. And so, around the birthday of John the Baptist, the days begin to decrease in length. And around the birth of Jesus, they begin to increase. There you go. Now, in today's Gospel lesson, we hear words from John calling for merciful justice, radical generosity, and vocational integrity. And John addresses the crowds who come to hear him in a fashion that today would probably not pack the pews. He says, you brood of vipers. For those who heard those words, and this is the first time that the crowd is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, for those in the crowd who heard those words, it may have called to mind the image that I read about in two commentaries of scrub fires in the desert, and the fire begins to burn across the land, and hordes of snakes pour out of their dens in order to escape the fire. A brood of vipers. Not a pretty picture to begin with, and even more so because these creatures, in addition to probably being scary, probably being disgusting, and probably being poisonous, they were also ritually unclean. The worst of all. So, John wastes no time disillusioning those who feel their place in God's eyes is thoroughly guaranteed because they were descendants of Abraham. Before anyone in the crowd can even raise that point, John says, don't even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Don't even think about it. Because God can raise up descendants of Abraham from these stones. And we must remember that the Judean desert is covered on its surface with rocks and stones and not much else as far as the eye can see. Several commentators noted that if John were speaking in Aramaic, there is only a difference of one short syllable between the word that means stones and the word that means children. 
So John the Baptist may have been using a powerful pun that was meant to drive home his point, which was the connection to Abraham is an attempt at self-justification, which God can foil. Instead of counting on their ancestry, John tells them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Not your roots, but your fruits. And so the crowd, having had their basis for pride utterly debunked, asks John, perhaps in bewilderment, perhaps in fear, what then shall we do? And here we have to have a bit of a Lutheran interjection. Historically, we Lutherans have been scared witless of anything that smacks of works righteousness. I contend, however, in the 21st century, we don't have much to fear. I have yet to meet the person who is attempting to earn salvation. Although I have met a ton of people who are relentlessly trying to win approval, if not from God, then from somebody or everybody else. Sometimes people are even trying to earn the approval of somebody who's been dead for years. But that's a whole other sermon topic. So through our Lutheran lens, John is not going to tell people what they should do for their salvation, but what they should do with their salvation. I like to think, therefore, that John is talking here not about justification, but rather sanctification. And for us Lutherans, that's a whole other sermon series. In response to John's pointed proclamation, the crowd asks, what then shall we do? And John gets specific. Again, to repeat the words of Thomas Gomes, that's when the preacher stops preaching and starts meddling. What shall we do? It's a beautiful question. It's a sibling to that wonderful question from confirmation, what does this mean? I hope we ask ourselves every Sunday after hearing the gospel lesson, what then shall we do? I hope after hearing the sermon and during the week after we've heard the news, we ask ourselves, what then shall we do? We had a bit of discussion about this during Bible study last week, and like every good Bible study, it raised more questions than it resolved. That's the purpose of Bible study. People were talking about vocation. Maybe not in so many words, but they were talking about vocation. And this box can seem a bit more ambiguous for those of us who check the box, retired. And sometimes it's challenging too for those of us who would check the box for student or pupil. There was discussion of whether when one was doing enough. And as I thought about it this week, I would offer that the question is not, have I done enough? But how would I know that enough had been done? Is this, in fact, not a question to which we can only respond, well, it's complex, it's complicated, and it's contextual. And we may have to stop looking for the one, one right, perfect answer to the question, how would I know that enough has been done? We may have to stop looking for the one right, perfect answer and instead live into loving that question, as the poet says, and not beating ourselves up with it. I always think of a little vignette from the life of Mother Teresa, Teresa of Calcutta. One day a real snarky reporter asked her, so what are you going to do when there are no more poor people? And she smiled and she said, then we will be unemployed. Not to worry, right? There will always be work for us.
an article in the ELC website, uh, which is really dense theologically. Um, and I actually posted this article in the, in the parish hall because this is not easy to hear, I don't think. So fasten your seatbelts. The article says, vocation refers to more than dedicated service in one's occupation. It refers above all to the whole theater of personal, communal, and historical relationships in which one lives. Faith spontaneously springs into acts of love, according to Luther. The gospel invites us to see our vocation as a concrete way of expressing our faith, not as a limitation on love, but as a channel for it. Seeing vocation as the situation in history and society in which we find ourselves enlarges vocation almost beyond our strength. Responding to such a calling will surely allow God to sanctify us and to empty us so that Christ will be all in all. That you kind of have to sit and take a breath. People in the crowds ask John, what then shall we do? And his reply is crystal clear. We are to share what we have with those who have nothing. And did you notice John the Baptist isn't talking a tithe? He's saying half of what you have. If you got two coats and somebody has none, that person who has none gets a coat. Talk about radical generosity. And he was talking to people who probably were only those who were affluent that had two coats or more. Then, as though to introduce an element of surprise, Luke writes, even tax collectors came to be baptized and respectfully asked, teacher, teacher, what shall we do? Now those tax collectors could probably better be called toll collectors as they were typically situated on provincial borders, such as we might have, um, I don't know, between Truckee and, and Reno, state borders, for instance. And they would collect a toll, and that was how they generated revenue. Much like we had people collecting tolls on bridges. But these toll collectors had the reputation of insisting on varying amounts, depending on what the traffic would bear. Can you imagine what would have happened at the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, if the toll collectors could have varied their charges based on their own need, desire, or greed? So small wonder these tax collectors were typically despised and held in contempt along with other groups that were marginalized. But even tax collectors came to John the Baptist to be baptized, and he tells them short and sweet, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Then soldiers came and asked him, and we, what should we do? And John essentially says, don't use your power in your position to extort money by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. Merciful justice, radical generosity, and vocational integrity. Sisters and brothers, siblings in Christ, these are the way that make for joy in life. Merciful justice, radical generosity, vocational integrity. In and through the Holy Spirit as our response to the good news. 
another focus for contemplation and action during Advent, isn't it? And the people in the crowd, rather than being filled with pushback, with argumentation or irritation, the people in the crowd are filled with expectation. Because ultimately, the message of John the Baptist, while referencing the end times, judgment and repentance, is also a message of hope. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. And so with these and many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. So John's good news was eschatological, looking forward to the end times, ethical, what then should we do, and messianic, there is one who is coming. One commentator observed that John the Baptist perhaps perceived that the kingdom might be achieved by some catastrophic act of God, but Jesus knew that it must be built with the grace of God to those who are willing to live, work, and suffer for their Father's purposes. This commentator says, the process of redemption, and I would say the process of sanctification, always must be patient and gradual. It must be worked out through men and women who do not suppose that a single stroke will decide the battles which are waged in the arena of this world's right and wrong. The way of coming of the kingdom of God may involve many disappointments, many victories which may be only partial, and temporary defeats which must be endured and will require the kind of consecration that is willing as Jesus was, to face crosses and to go past these into a larger life. One is coming who is more powerful than I. And this is the one whose words were given to us that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. Therefore, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.